Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Footage from Chinese state-run television showing the triumphant return of China's 39th Antarctic expedition. Crew members lined in red lined the deck and waved to shouts from shore of "Welcome home" and "Congratulations on your triumphant return." For the latest in our series on China beyond the ends of the earth, we're going polar. This month, we're going for a quick-fire exploration of China's activities in the Arctic and Antarctic, where China's investing a lot of money in scientific exploration. Research stations, and it's also becoming ever more active in polar governance. Is this the new great game? This month, we're delighted to be joined by a star panel, including Nungye Liu, associate professor of law in Singapore Management University, as well as Ike Fryman, a postdoctoral fellow at the Arctic Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and Mia Bennett, assistant professor in geography at the University of Washington. Let's start with the big picture stuff, and for those not in the know, we'll start with the Arctic, which, for you geographic laggards, is the North Pole, a place where there's water, a bit of ice,、um, but no land. So it seems that historically China hasn't been that interested in the Arctic. It ratified the Antarctic Treaty in 1983, but it seems like a turning point in Arctic policy came in 2018. When China announced it was a near Arctic state,、um, I googled this, and China's actually like seven thousand five hundred kilometers from the Arctic. It doesn't; its coasts don't border the Arctic Sea, and it doesn't really claim sovereignty on Arctic waters. What's going on? How can it claim to be a near Arctic state? The way to understand this is that the Arctic is a region that is governed by Arctic states. That provides very, very weak formal protections、uh, to non-Arctic states. The Arctic Council contains the eight circumpolar nations. They operate by consensus.、Uh, China, as a non-Arctic state, is an observer, but they have no voting power. And、uh, because of something called the Aleutlisat Declaration,、uh, the five most powerful Arctic states, which are the U.S., Russia,、uh, Denmark, Canada, and Norway. Uh, agreed that no new institutions will be necessary for the Arctic. So, in that sense, China calls this the the Arctic Monroe Doctrine.、Uh, there is no pathway for China to enjoy、uh, actually substantive、uh, representation in Arctic governance. But China understands that if it can find a smaller Arctic state that could be a proxy for its interests. Uh, then it could influence Arctic governance through that proxy, and it's also very interested in the longer term in finding an Arctic state that's willing to give it a, a friendly port of call, a base of operations that will make it not totally reliant on Russia to operate in the region.、Uh, because I think there's an understanding. This comes out of the of the geopolitical literature that Russia would like. To be China's gatekeeper to the region, it would like to sell China its resources in the region. But if China has an independent position, China suddenly becomes much less dependent 
on Russia. I've heard you argue in the past that I mean, what's driving China in um, Antarctica in particular, uh, rather contrary to Anne-Marie Brady's argument that, that China has sort of a secret agenda um, in Antarctica, that far from having an agenda, um, China doesn't even have a vision and they haven't really even thought about what they're doing in Antarctica. So in the absence of a vision, who's driving the bus? Like what's what's driving five bases being built? Like what's driving China's activity? Is it commercial interests or something else? Oh, it's absolutely the, the resources. Uh, it's a resources driven, no, no doubt for, for the Arctic and Antarctica. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to talk about British book because I, I just feel like that's, that's actually not, not correct. That there's a secret agenda that I, which I partic- I'm particularly in disagreement with. But the driving force of, of China's uh, polar expeditions are, of course, very clear. It's, it's resources driven because uh, China is, is the world's second largest economy. The, the major kind of uh, idea behind this kind of uh, polar expeditions and, and also uh, expansions is to make sure to make sure because the polar regions are frontiers of the planet so there are potentials and there are opportunities but it's not commercially viable yet but i think for for the chinese government starting from 1980s since they reopened uh, to the outside world and to embrace the international community especially the us anchored international community what they really want to do is not to be left behind so because they have seen they have seen and experienced uh, the, clon- uh, the colonial history uh, in the early 20th century so they don't really want to be uh, left be- left behind again that when there are new opportunities and, and resources uh, potentials in those uh, so-called frontiers areas i think that's that's the kind of major driving force out there so mia i mean would you agree with that assessment that china's activities are mainly resource driven i mean i guess we can see that there are major concerns about China's um, not wanting to cooperate on proposed marine protection areas and perhaps its behaviour is raising concerns about what happens after the ban on commercial drilling runs out in 2048. So there seemed to be a lot of resource... Yeah, resources seem to be a big factor there, but do you think it's the main, the main factor? That's a good question. I think it's certainly a massively important factor that Nenye is right on the money about. Um, China has a huge population. It has a huge demand for resources from minerals to fish, um, which are in ample supply in the Arctic. Um, Resources such as natural gas, particularly as China seeks to shift away from carbon intensive coal. Um, Russia has huge supplies of natural gas, and China's invested heavily in a couple of Arctic um, natural gas projects, such as Yamal and Arctic 2, which for um, since 2017 or so, Yamal's been sending gas eastwards via the Northern Sea Route, the shipping uh, route on the north coast of Russia over to China. And I think that amount is only growing in light of, of course, the events in Ukraine and the fact that Western markets are... Um, accepting far less Russian gas supplies now. Um, so there is the resource element for sure, um, driving Chinese interests in the Arctic Antarctic. But I would mention another factor at play, which is China's desire to be seen in the eyes of the international community as a modern state, as a state that um, carries out prestigious activities such as polar exploration and research, um, climate change research, a state that is seen as a legitimate contributor to governance and discussions about um, these pressing global challenges. So I think that's a motivation um, as well for China to be active in the Arctic, to contribute to discussions 
Um, and also, in some sense, be seen as an equal, I think, among countries that don't have territory in the Arctic, such as the UK. You know, the UK has been present, as you mentioned, for centuries with all of its histories of expeditions, and yet no one blinks an eye when the UK proclaims itself to be the Arctic's nearest neighbor. Um, so China does still get a lot of scrutiny for making kind of similar discursive statements. Um, and I think a lot of the work that China's trying to do in the Arctic is to, in some sense, you know, legitimize itself and not only look for resources, but say to the rest of the international community, we're also here and we're here to stay and we want to be seen as an equal. One thing I've been wanting to ask, because um, in, in the first episode of this series, um, we had some people talking about China's ambitions in space. And one of our guests, Brad Tucker, mentioned that um, Antarctica is sort of a unique place in terms of astronomy, because you have this point where you basically, the sky doesn't change. You're at the bottom of the rotating axis. So you can look at a point in the sky, very unpolluted skies. Uh, is space a factor in Antarctica in terms of other activities? I could speak a bit to um, the convergence of China's interests in the frontier of outer space or um, low Earth orbits, orbital space, and um, the polar regions. Um, not only is Antarctica useful for astronomical observations, as you mentioned, but there's a big interest um, from China and several other countries um, in building ground stations in the Antarctic and Arctic. And these ground stations are um, these big radar that downlink data from satellites orbiting overhead. And there's been more and more interest in recent decades in launching Earth-observing satellites. And in order for a satellite to, um, to gather imagery of the entire planet, they take polar orbits, meaning they um, orbit over the North and South Poles with every shifting longitude, effectively. So they're passing frequently over the North and South Pole, and therefore you want to build stations in, in the Arctic and the Antarctic to access that data. Um, so I think that's a big reason why we'll see increasing amounts of um, ground infrastructure being built for the development of outer space, or I should say orbital space in order to gather these observations. And that's something that China's certainly interested in, but other countries such as Norway, Sweden, um, the US, they're also investing in more ground stations in the polar regions. But at the moment, there's no undersea cables connecting to Antarctica. I mean, is, is that on the cards? And will that really change things in terms of Antarctica's usefulness for uh, near space, if you like? Oh, that's something I can't speak to. I mostly follow the developments in the Arctic ground segment, um, where there has um, for some time been a cable connecting Svalbard to mainland Norway. But that was actually um, very controversially severed, allegedly by Russian saboteurs um, last year. So those those undersea cables, you raise a good point, are going to be sites of, I think, increasing tensions. Um, but I don't know about the status of one Antarctica. Um, China, for its part, is also looking at ways to um, effectively pass information between satellites in space so that you wouldn't need to build a ground station in Antarctica, which is, as you mentioned, hard to get data out of. Um, so if they're able to send data to another satellite, then they could pass it down to a ground station in, let's say, mainland China, where China would never have issues accessing the data. Um, in recent years, China, China, the Chinese Academy of Sciences contract with ground stations in Sweden and Australia was not renewed. So I think this has led again to a kind of um, reconsideration within China of how to um, kind of strengthen its data sovereignty. Um, and that might require changes to even how it conducts research in these frontiers like the polar regions and space. 
There you go. I had no, I had no idea that Cass had a ground station in, in Australia. Is, is that why Xi Jinping keeps going to Tasmania? It's not in Tasmania. <laughs> Western Australia or Northern Territory, if not. And it's 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 really part of the Beidou system, I think, the space. Yes, yeah, part of the bigger system. Uh, yeah, but I, what I I also haven't updated myself for a while uh, since I left Australia. <laughs> but but I I guess the Dumei uh, telescope project. So you know, Dumei is the highest point of the Antarctic ice sheet where uh, there is a Chinese station called Kunlun Station. So there, actually, for for quite a while, it's it's a it's a very good good example of the Australia-China uh, Antarctic cooperation because what happened in the past was the uh, Australian scientists like uh, from USW, uh, that's what I heard, they actually they produced a telescope because Australia has the technology. And then the Chinese would just ship the, the telescope to the Dumay. And then because that's the highest point of Antarctic ice sheet, so it's, it's a very good location to do, uh, what's that called, astronomical research? I want to ask Ike about that China's ambitions uh, to build an Arctic Belt and Road and how that, you know, basically that goes over this frozen ocean. I mean, what would this Arctic Belt and Road be doing? Or is it just kind of territorial expansionism? I know you've written a book about the Belt and Road, Ike. I mean, Nangye has written uh, some, I think, very compelling stuff on the Polar Silk Road. So we should we should bring him in as well. The headline is that none of the major Arctic uh, states has been able or willing to accept large Chinese investment into its Arctic critical infrastructure, with the big exception of Russia, which has allowed a minority Chinese stake in the port of Sabeta on the Yamal Peninsula, which is one of China's one of Russia's most important liquefied natural gas facilities. So China was originally a minority uh, shareholder in this project along with Total of France. Total pulled out after the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. So now it is essentially just a project owned by Russia, jointly operated by Russian and Chinese firms that produces LNG for export to China. Apart from that, the Russians have been surprisingly careful with managing their inbound foreign direct investment regime, precisely because the national security folks were always skeptical that the Belt and Road was a means of Chinese uh, uh, commercial colonialism, and that if Russia wasn't extremely careful, China would use it to just eat the Russian Far East. The Scandinavian countries have relatively fewer development or infrastructural needs. Many of them actually have more infrastructure than they need, then it's expensive to maintain it. Uh, China made a few uh, tendentious efforts. For example, they tried to get a port approved in the Norwegian town of Kirkenes, uh, and they were able to get local uh, officials behind the project. The problem is when Oslo figured out what China was up to, they immediately intervened, and that was that. And the, the Iceland story is similar. Uh, Iceland is very, very careful about letting foreign investors in, especially when it comes to land purchases. And China's uh, coming in too strong in the early 2010s, I think really had a triggering effect on Icelandic politicians. 
Iceland has no interest in letting China in to its critical infrastructure. They're happy to sell their, their fish or do commercial agreements with, with uh, uh, geothermal energy technology, but they don't want to let China build their telecoms or buy any land. So you start going through the Arctic states and you realize by process of elimination, uh, the Polar Silk Road fails because there is no meaningful partner for the Polar Silk Road. Uh, with the possible exception of Greenland. And there has been the literature suggesting that Greenland would be the ideal member of the Polar Silk Road because Greenland wants to be independent and they can't be because they have a conflict of interest with Denmark that doesn't want to give them the investment they need to become viable as a separate state. And therefore, China is the only potential partner. The problem is for now, Greenland is not a sovereign state, which means they shouldn't really be capable of joining any kind of Belt and Road Initiative at all. And they have a uh, legal arrangement with Denmark that gives Denmark a very wide uh, prerogative to veto anything that Greenland does with other countries on the basis of foreign and security policy. And the Danes have used this to obstruct potential Chinese investments into Greenlandic infrastructure, saying that any port, any investment into airports and so on is just intrinsically national security related. So what does this all add up to? I think China definitely has an aspiration in the future uh, when the Arctic has melted significantly uh, to be operating trade routes in the region, to be partnering with states in the region. They haven't given up on the commercial diplomacy playbook, but I think it's just become quite clear uh, that's not going to work in the short term. And so if China wants in, the smarter move is to tone down its ambitions, to spend a few years or decades reassuring everyone that it plans to abide by international law and continue building China's presence, but solely in the scientific domain. And I think that is the priority for the next few years. They may call it the Polar Silk Road still, but it has nothing to do with the Belt and Road as we conventionally understand it. Um, Nungya, I might bring you in quickly for your take. I mean, what, what do you see is the point of the Polar Silk Road? Uh, does it still have a point? Oh, yes. I mean, Polar Silk Road, for me, is just a catchy name. I mean, different ministries, they have KPIs to implement this, this overall signature uh, initiative. But then when it comes to the polar regions, oh, it's called Polar Silk Road. So it's a fancy name. But essentially, I think the Polar Silk Road, polar Silk Road is about two things, shipping routes and also uh, once again, resources. So uh, I think the Chinese uh, shipping industry uh, is one of the most active uh, ones in, in the East Asia, among East Asian countries to uh, explore uh, the, the more frequent use of the, of, of the Arctic shipping routes, uh, especially the Northeast Passage along uh, Russian coastline, because that is a much shorter uh, distance between uh, northern Chinese market and also the European market, like uh, Hamburg and Antwerp I'm talking about. That is still going on, and that's actually, I think, the Chinese uh, interest uh, of using the shipping route, especially the Northeast Passage, is still there. Uh, I think now it it's already comes to a very uh, pragmatic uh, stage that uh, basically what they do is uh, there is Russia, because North, Northeast Passage is the Arctic shipping route along the Russian coastline to Western Europe, right? While the Russian part of the Northeast Passage is called Northern Sea Route. So, but that's the most part. Of it. That's the most. That's the largest part of of the uh, Northeast Passage. So, in order to use the uh, Northern Sea Route, because Northern Sea Route is totally under uh, Russian jurisdiction, 
according to Russia. As I can mention, and I always uh, tell this to people that, you know, whenever I'm giving my presentation, because it's actually quite interesting to know that which country is the last country in the Arctic Council to accept China as an observer. That is Russia. <laughs> Russia is the last country in the Arctic Council to accept China as an observer in 2013. So, you know, they are always sensitive and very, very careful with the foreign involvement of the Russian Arctic. So, but now I think they, they don't have that many choices, especially for the uh, oil and gas uh, development projects. So I think this will be the two major parts of China's polar silk road. And indeed, uh, China's polar silk road, its main, its main partner is with Russia uh, rather than any other Arctic state. I think for all the other Arctic state, uh, states, at some point discussions were going on and a very, uh, uh, very kind of uh, hot uh, discussions. Like I remember even that's 2017. So I gave a talk about China's Belt and Road Initiative in, in, in Rovaniemi in, in the Arctic Center of University Lapland. And after my talk, I received the email, I just unsolicited email from, from someone I have no idea who that is, uh, proposing to, to build a uh, Arctic railway with me <laughs> in the Lapland. So I didn't reply. So of course, I'm just a little academic. But you know, you can see how big the interest was, you know, in, in, in those days. I'm talking about five, six years ago, but those, those, those days are gone. Well, that's a pity you've missed your opportunity to be a railway tycoon. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the question of shipping routes, Mia, I think you were at a meeting where discussion was focusing on a transarctic passage, which would be a route crossing the North Pole, um, you know, in a future where the polar ice has melted. And you have written about how China seems to be the only person who, you know, the only country that's looking at that possibility. Uh, how, how real is that, do you think? Well, I think the transpolar passage is something that, um, sadly, due to climate change, could be climatically feasible. I believe by mid-century, for about one month a year, it's possible that there would be a relatively ice-free passage by the North Pole. However, just because it's possible to sail some sort of ice-class vessel through waters that will still be a little bit icy, just not fully ice-covered, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become this magical new shortcut between um, Europe, Asia, and North America. I do think there's a lot of symbolic cachet. So I imagine China, again, in its drive to be seen as this modern prestigious state, um, has kept its eye on what's happening there. It, it is the only country, as far as I'm aware, that has sent three expeditions um, through the Northeast, Northwest, and Transpolar Passages. Um, but that being said, I think what actually may be more of interest to China in terms of Arctic shipping routes in the coming decades and perhaps other um, shipping companies as well, is the fact that as the Arctic ice retreats, it becomes possible to sail just a little bit north of the Northern Sea Route so that you no longer need to effectively pay for an escort um, through Russia's Northern Sea Route. So if countries and shipping lines can circumvent that, let's say, multi-million dollar fee and sail in pretty much the same types of waters, just a bit north of um, Russia's boundaries, that could make sailing via the Arctic between Europe and Asia that much more compelling. 
So I think that's something to keep um, our eyes on. It's something that Russia obviously has very little interest in happening. It wants to be able to collect those fees and kind of maintain that it's, um, its dominance over the Northeast Passage by controlling the Northern Sea Route. But as ICE retreats, I think that will be harder and harder for Russia to maintain. I mean, you know, this has been such a wide ranging discussion, looking at shipping, resources, geo, you know, big power politics, scientific exploration. But it seems that at the heart of it, there are two quite different narratives that emerge. One of China's this kind of wallflower, which is sitting, waiting for its dance card to be filled, not able to get an elbow into sort of polar politics. Or you have the on the other side, sort of China, the predator, is pouring money in there, desperately trying to dominate wherever it can. How should we understand China's uh, behavior and its motivations in polar politics and in polar governance? Um, Ike, you first. I think the the way to understand China's position towards the Arctic is that it, it comes from the place of weakness and insecurity. Uh, it comes from an awareness that decisions that are taken now in anticipation of future climate change uh, will help set the stage for how uh, resources and access are allocated in the future. Uh, I think there is clearly an understanding that goes all the way up to Xi Jinping himself, that China has the right and the legitimacy to, to aspire to become a polar great power. Uh, there's a recognition that from a practical point of view, China's a long way from getting there. Without geopolitical support from other states, that project becomes much harder. And it is likely to be a multi-decade project of building up a presence in these both polar regions through uh, scientific and civilian enterprises. But I think we shouldn't be uh, naive China has a very different way of thinking about the governance of the global commons than most Western countries. And there are commonalities between how China understands the governance of, of, of the Arctic, of cyberspace, of the deep sea, of outer space, what they call the, the strategic new frontiers, the Zhangli Xinjiangyu, right? Which are seen as these spaces where existing international law is inadequate, and there's an opportunity for China to play some role in writing the rules. Because I think we now understand and we can see comparatively how China thinks about these different domains, uh, yes, if China ever were to gain the comprehensive national power to assert itself in these places, it most definitely would, in a similar way to how it has pushed the limits of UNCLOS um, off of its territorial coasts. When you talk about UNCLOS, you're referring to the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea. Sure. So I do think that some concern is warranted. Just the timeline of, of this turning into real uh, conflict between China and the United States or China and the West is not five, ten years. It's more like 30 to 50. So, so Nungi, this isn't something I think I've seen you write about, but um, China is now attracting the kind of attention that Japanese whalers used to attract with its cruel fishing in Antarctica, um, you know, with the sea shepherd chasing them and taking photographs and accusing them of 
plowing through whale pods, stuff like that. Um, and this Australian analyst, Claire Young, has argued this approach could actually um, have a, you know, lead to a nationalistic backlash and actually prolong this fairly uneconomic um, practice of fishing so far from China's um, waters. I mean, um, what do you think of this take? Do you think, uh, it, you know, th- their encounter with Greenpeace and the Bob Brown Foundation is, is going to lead them to um, see it as sort of a conspiracy by the West to keep them out of Antarctica? I think there are, there are two, two points here. One comes to the process, I mean, the legal process of establishing uh, marine protected areas in Kamala. What is Kamala? Sorry. Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. Uh, China is indeed uh, at a stage uh, very similar to uh, Japan in, in old days where they were in the uh, International Whaling Commission. So the inherent tension is here, I think, very similar because International Whaling Commission is an organization that was established in 1948 to manage sustainable whaling. So initially, it was an organization to manage whaling, not to ban, completely ban whaling. But somehow, following, uh, I think, decades of uh, evolutionary uh, development, uh, the International Whaling Commission established two large uh, whaling sanctuaries, including one in the Southern Ocean. So that's when the tension uh, began. So because Japan still wants to conduct whaling, while the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, is now becoming a, a, a conservation body. So that's where the, the tension uh, was. And now it's very much the uh, same kind of uh, or similar situation for, for China and Kamala, because Kamala was established as an organization um, also in the shadow of the Soviet creel fishing, so which manages the Southern Ocean creel fishing. Uh, so that's raised a lot of interest. So it was established in, 19, uh, in the early 1980s uh, with, with the concern that the Soviets would just come and, and, and conduct the creel fishing. So indeed, the Soviet uh, creel fishing industry used to be the largest in the, southern, in, the, in the Antarctic waters. So it was established to manage, once again, to manage uh, creel fishing, but not just creel fishing, but uh, fisheries in general. So there are only two uh, lucrative uh, kind of fishing uh, uh, going on. One is creel fishing, another one is tooth fish. So I think, but Kamala also has become uh, very conservation oriented. So especially since 2012, when the, uh, the proposals to establish uh, marine protected areas were put on the table. But Another point is when you're talking about Sea Shepherd, and I think it's not there yet because uh, the Chinese capacity of conducting creel fishing is actually very limited. They don't really have sufficient capacity to conduct creel fishing uh, to make any profit. So, so far, they have like two, three vessels every year. They were sent to different parts of the Kamala waters in the Southern Ocean and try to explore any potential fishing opportunities. I think also it's different because we shouldn't forget that why whaling is largely banned and with support of the Western countries is because of that it is a charismatic species, right? So it is, it is large charismatic and people can see it. So that's why it's very easy to convince people in, in, in Australia and also in the US that no, it's very brutal. We should stop killing whales. While creoles is tiny, tiny little bit. So... You know, I, I I don't really I don't really know whether that that will be the same, you know, kind of image in people's mind that to to protect creels, 
as as crazy as they protect the whales. But for, for me, they are the same, of course. I mean, these, these are the same uh, species. And also, uh, krill is the core species for the whole Southern Ocean ecosystem. Every other animals, like uh, like penguins and seals, they depend on krill. So it is actually very important to protect krills. One thing I, I wanted to ask um, was about how this war in the Ukraine is, is affecting Arctic governance, because... You know, Russia is such a, a key player, but now all the other parties that would normally cooperate with Russia um, are, are obviously somewhat differently disposed. I mean, has this kind of paralyzed Arctic governance or what, what's been the effect? Um, I think if you asked this question a year ago, people would have been just really um, devastated by what's happened, not only for the people of Ukraine, but for the Arctic as well. Um, so after Russia invaded um, the Arctic Council, which until next month is still under uh, Russia's chairmanship. So the chairmanship rotates every two years. Um, the Arctic Council declared a pause on its activities. Um, what that means is that officially there aren't meetings of the eight Arctic Council member states, nor with the observers. Um, in practice, I think there still has been some sorts of informal coordination. I can't speak to the extent with of which um, that's been going on between the Arctic 7, as they're now called, and Russia. Um, but increasingly, there's certainly a huge fracturing of cooperation Arctic, and that's extended beyond the Arctic Council to everything from scientific projects with researchers now no longer to go to Russia to launch buoys or gather field observations or whatnot, to cooperation between indigenous peoples whose um, groups, of course, span borders in the Arctic. Um, so it's been a really devastating. I think um, in a month or so when the ministerial is held and when supposedly St. Petersburg will hold also the Arctic Science Ministerial, um, it will be interesting to see how and whether Arctic cooperation picks back up as the chairmanship moves to Norway at the Arctic Council and also how China will respond to that. Um, at the Arctic Circle Conference, which is a kind of uh, kind of a Arctic circus, as it's referred to, where everyone from politicians to scientists to um, indigenous folks comes to this annual meeting in Iceland. So anyone can go to that. Um, there was a high level discussion between the former president of Iceland and um, China's Arctic representative. And the Arctic ambassador of China mentioned that if the Arctic Council reconvenes in, um, in May following the ending of Russia's chairmanship, and Norway declares it to be the Arctic Council, but only seven countries attend, and let's say Russia no longer no, doesn't go to the renewed meetings, then China might question whether that's actually still the Arctic Council. And if it's not, instead, a new body, the Arctic Seven, which is effectively may soon be synonymous with NATO once Sweden joins that organization. So I think, long story short, cooperation in the Arctic is undergoing a huge state change um, we've had 30 years or so since um, Soviet Premier Gorbachev declared let the Arctic be a zone of peace in 1987. That period has come to a close. And for the sake of people and environment, Arctic, I really hope there's ways around um, the lack of formal international cooperation in the region at a circumpolar scale to still maintain um, work and carry on really important, valuable work in, that sees the whole region as one.
Ike was talking about strategic new frontiers and how there are commonalities between China's actions in space, in the Arctic, in, in deep sea mining. And I mean, you've been looking at satellites as well. What kind of threads do you see that, that connect China's actions in the polar regions with China's actions in these other strategic new frontiers? Mm. The strategic new frontiers are a very interesting concept. Um, there's a scholar... Patrick Stieg Anderson, I believe from Denmark, who's written a really terrific paper kind of looking at the genealogy of that concept and how it extends um, in Chinese discourses to the polar regions, to the high seas. Um, gosh, I'm going to forget the third region, but the one I also, or sorry, yeah, polar regions, high seas, outer space, and cyberspace. Um, and what I find quite interesting is this digital element. Um, that's something that China's been pushing a lot is kind of digitization of China, um, digitization and big data in all sorts of scientific fields, and how the generation of data in many ways is becoming itself, itself a source of political legitimacy. So if China can generate data, whether about the deep seas or let's say about the Arctic with the help of satellites, does the fact that it's that it has this source of knowledge, which is so valued by the international community, um, kind of give it or strengthen its status in scientific and political economic discussions as well. So I think that's something China has its eye on is how can it intervene in these four spaces, which, which are both virtual and real, where, as I mentioned, the laws are not you know, necessarily very well formulated, um, if at all. A lot of these spaces are relatively anarchic. Um, and so China sees opportunities to help set new regulations that reflect Chinese norms and standards as opposed to, let's say, the Washington consensus. So these are fast changing dynamic regions um, and we'll have to keep an eye on them as to how China seeks to um, regulate and govern them going forward. My last question for you, Nanya. We've been talking a lot about polar governance and how China is making inroads or trying to make inroads into polar governance. But listening to you talk about how China is basically kind of perverting Kamala with its actions, I, I guess I have a question about whether China will become that kind of responsible stakeholder that Western nations might hope for in polar governance, or if, in fact, their ambitions in polar governance are really quite different to be a, a much more disru disruptive force that is perhaps changing polar institutions for its own benefit, dismantling uh, marine protection zones, allowing, you know, all these changes. I mean, how do you foresee the future? Yes, I certainly don't want them to become a disruptive uh, player like, like Russia. Uh, but uh, you can see now, uh, especially in Kamala, uh, it is very difficult. I mean, it is a very difficult situation uh, between uh, China and Russia on one, hand, on the one side and also the rest of the Kamala members almost on the other side. But if you, uh, but I still have hope. I mean, I still have hope. If you look at uh, China's Arctic policy, uh, which was published in 2018, it was indeed a very well-crafted, carefully developed uh, policy document that really addresses uh, the Arctic states' concerns. So they openly acknowledge and recognize the existing international law that ap applies in, to the Arctic 
which means the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which means China also recognized the Arctic state sovereignty in the Arctic Ocean. I gave a talk in 2020, I think, which was very well received. That I also openly talked about this, that I, I had three critiques for Chinese uh, polar law and policy, I mean, currently. So I think the first one is uh, it, it is really a lack of imagination. That there is no imagination. It's it's really just about this is the current this is the, there is an existing system. How can we make use of it? And then the second is it's a it's a lack of a alternative plan. So if you say, oh, we want a fairer and and more uh, kind of equal uh, international system, including in the polar governance, what is the alternative uh, that that you propose on the table? There is no such kind of uh, alternative. And uh, and the final one is uh, it is it is very much like. Uh, old-fashioned thinking that it's only just resources driven for national interest because the polar the poles and the polar regions and also deep sea bed and also cyberspace they are called commons for a reason because they're not just for any country so if they really want to become a leader in those spaces what they want to what they need to do is to not just develop uh, alternative options that i just mentioned but also to be more futuristic you know, more kind of uh, uh, creative, and also it's a very narrow-minded self-interest because it, because China is not a small country. China is the second largest economy in the world, so they should be able to, if they really want to become a leader in the international system, they should really think beyond the narrow resources-driven national interest to 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 lead the international community with a different narrative, which which should be better than the existing system. I disagree that there is a so-called secret agenda to overturn the existing system. What I can see is they surely, they are playing the game and they are playing the game very seriously. And of course, when there is an opportunity to write the future of the international law, such as uh, the 2018 uh, Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement, uh, they are invited as an as a, as a equal party to negotiate with Arctic states because they are a key high sea fishing state. They do so, they join the discussion like, like the recently concluded BBNJ agreement, the High Sea Treaty is another example. They invest a lot of resources and time. They join discussions, and then they may not get what exactly what they want. But of course, everyone wants something from those negotiations. So uh, what I see is they are playing the rules and the system very seriously. Oh, that's so fascinating. Thank you very much. Nungye, <laughs> Mia, Ike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Grant Smith and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing is by Andy Hazel. Our producer is Wing Tong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.